0: CrossTracks case management system. That is what we are talking about today. Are you using a case management system? What are you waiting for? If you don't use a case management system, you really need to look into implementing that into your business regimen. I've been at it with CrossTracks now a little over a year, and it's just been a game changer for my business. They are SOC 2 certified, SOC 2 type 2 certified. If you don't know what that means, it means that they're encryption system is second to none and you have to go through a whole screening process to figure out uh, if you can even qualify for that and they have so you know with certainty your data is being protected i don't think there's another case management system out there that offers that same ability to have the SOC 2 type 2 certification as you guys know i've been uh you know singing the praises of crosstracks and uh, i really believe in this product and i believe you should check it out contact Brad, contact Pat, uh, one of the team members over there and see if it's right for you. CrossTracks case management system, check it out today. I wanted to talk to you about the investigators toolbox. We have a big, big announcement. We have created an app for the website. You can now download that app on your phone. Use Apple, if you use Samsung, it's on both platforms. You can gain access to the site. And uh, the really cool part about it is once you log in, it's on your phone and you're good to go. You can just open up the app and the site is completely usable. Everything you find on the site, on the website, you can actually use on your phone as well. So I'm really happy to bring that to market. It should be about mid-April that it's being released. Want to give you guys the heads up. I want to thank everybody that has listened uh, to the show and gone on and and signed up. we got several hundred investigators in there. Really excited by the site and the contributions by everybody involved in the site. Got some great content with the app. You'll get push notifications when we add content, which is something that's really cool. And we have some other really cool features coming down the pipe uh, that I'm really excited to talk to you about. So it's www.investigators-toolbox.com.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of PI Perspectives. Today's an extra special show. We have Vincent D'Agostino from Blue Voyant stopping by to talk about his role in the famous Silk Road cybercrime investigations. Vinny's an attorney, former FBI agent, and an expert on cybercrime. We're honored to have him on the show, so please welcome Vincent D'Agostino and your host, private investigator
0: Matt Spare. And welcome everybody to this week's episode of PI Perspectives. This is Matt Spare, your host. Uh, today, I'm very, very honored to introduce Vinny D'Agostino. Vinny, how are you doing today?
2: Good. Thanks for having me on, man.
0: Yeah, no problem, man. So we hooked up through uh, Ken Fetter. So shout out to Kenny for the connection here. Uh, Kenny's an old, old friend of mine, and, and you guys happen to know each other. And he said, you need to talk to Vinny. And uh, wow, I really did need to talk to Vinny. You've had uh, quite a career, man. You, you've covered some different areas, an attorney. You've done uh, cyber investigations and you and you work for the FBI. You were part of the team that was involved in the uh, Silk Road investigations. So right. t- tell me a little bit about how you started off with law school and kind of went the whole route and, and got into doing that investigative work.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's weird how uh, sometimes things come together in life that you can't anticipate, like different things you're interested in as you go through life, you think there's no way that there's a job or jobs that could ever combine those. And my story is weird because all of those things kind of came together. So I I started out very interested in technology at a really young age. Uh, My dad was a lifer at IBM. Uh, When he immigrated here, he went to to the army. And then after the army, he started working, fixing typewriters at IBM. This was before they were even doing PCs and stuff. Wow! So we had these, you know, Two hundred pound typewriters in the house, those big metal ones, and and I remember him bringing home that type ball. You remember that ball that they yes. they patented that was like you know the equivalent of like a rocket ship back then. And right. he was telling me how it worked and and how much money the company was making off of it. And and then eventually, as they moved into PCs, he started bringing home these computers and these parts. And my brother and I just fell in love with it. Sure. Um, and he would he would and they were simple back then. I mean, they were Absolutely. huge. So yeah. you know, it wasn't like uh, like it is even now. Yeah. And so he would, uh, you know, uh, quickly started showing us how to build these machines, you know, taking the case apart and putting the motherboard in and then putting the cards in and, you know, how to set up the power supply and the memory and all that. I started down that path and figured that's where I was going to head. I, right. I I had a passion for it. I, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I would stay up all night playing around with these computers, getting in trouble uh, for stay, for playing these with computers all night. And so when I went to college, uh, I started out with a focus on computer science, thinking that's the route I would go. I started thinking about the FBI, probably late high school. Okay. It crossed my mind that, you know, maybe there's a way to, to do the computer thing to help me get into the FBI. But that was really kind of a, a pie in the sky type of dream. And then Penn State did some kind of a job career thing. And right. they had, you know, representatives from the FBI there talking to students and I had asked the agent who was probably four minutes to retirement at that point. Wow! And I said, um, you know, I'm interested. I've been thinking about it. I went online. I'm, this is, you know, the, what they had on the website back then was super primitive. And I said, I went on the website and I saw, you know, the qualifications and what do you need? And he goes, well, what is your major? And I said, oh, it's computer science. He's like, ah, I don't know about this computer stuff that's really going anywhere. <laughs> it's a fad, right? <laughs> Literally, that was what he implied. He was like, oh, ah, man. this computer stuff, that's not really going to help what else are you interested in? And I said, well, I took like a business law class and I loved it. And I took a constitutional law class and I loved it. And he said, well, go to law school. If you thought about law school, I said, I've thought about it, but this was early on. And, and I was still trying to figure out like what, uh, you know, there's a point in your life where you're, you're kind of not sure what you're capable of. And, you know, you're, you're, You want to make sure that your aspirations kind of are consistent with your skills and your potential. And I I don't think I had a ton of confidence at that point. So I thought about it and I was like, law school, I mean, my parents would love it. You know, is it something that I can really do? So I switched over to pre-law and I loved all the classes. And I decided that even if the FBI didn't work out, I could really be happy practicing law. Like worst case scenario, I'm doing something that I actually still love. And I love the idea of the FBI, but you don't know what the FBI is really going to be like. Sure. So I did that, went through, graduated with, uh, I think I was political science pre-law or pre-law was the same as political science, whatever it was, then went to to law school. And then at that point was getting real serious about, you know, what the plan would be once I got through law school for the FBI. And so I talked to some people there and they told me that, you know, in order to be competitive, if you want to get into the FBI, there's a minimum qualifications. And I hear this a lot from people. Well, I went to college, you know, I graduated with a four-year degree. I can be an FBI agent. Technically you meet the minimum qualifications, but the problem is, is it, the number of applications they get, you know, it's something insane. Like for every seat, there's like 10,000 applications for every seat. I believe it. Yeah. I believe so it. Yeah. you can't just be like, Hey, I checked the minimum boxes. You know, I went to a four year college. I got a degree in fashion. Now I'm working at ACE hardware I'd be a great FBI agent. They're right. going to be like, "Well, you technically check the boxes, but you have nothing that we would want." So, and that's not to say, by the way, y- you can come in almost under any any discipline. Accountants, uh, lawyers, yeah. right? A yeah. third CPAs, yeah. A third lawyers and a third military. It was just general break, breakdown. I mean, there was there was a little bit on the margins, but that's and that's what the guy told me at uh, the recruiter. He said, "You know, lawyers are always going to be needed," and he was right. But the problem is, is that by the time I started getting serious about applying and I was in law school and thinking about the next step, you know, I was talking to people who were applying and not getting in as lawyers. And it's because lawyers were really a dime a dozen. I mean, there's so many lawyers
0: (laughs) in New York, especially Yeah, exactly. in New (laughs) York, we
2: forget it. So I started to get a little nervous about that. And when I started speaking to uh, towards, I guess it was probably towards my last year of law school, I started speaking to someone at the FBI about applying and she said, well, tell tell me more about your background and as i went through all my technical background because i was still working summers and christmases at ibm and i was working at the at penn state in the in the computer lab i was setting up small networks and repairing computers working in the in the lab i just and i was doing that as a hobby and then as as i was in law school I was maintaining small networks for law firms in the area. Again, just kind of as a hobby. I was doing it on nights and weekends because I just loved it. Sure. So when when they added all of that up, she said, well, you can come in under two disciplines, law and cyber. And cyber was the big thing at that point. This was 2003, you know, post 9-11. Right. They realized part of the analysis of the hot wash after 9-11 was that, you know, the FBI was completely... You know, not prepared from a technological perspective. Right I mean, behind the
0: eight ball with with technology. Yeah. Absolutely, I mean,
2: yeah. the technology was garbage. Yep. And so they were using computers. You know, floppy disks, and uh, I mean, maybe some of them had CD-ROMs at the time, but nice. They were really, yeah, they were really underfunded in that area and underdeveloped. So that moved me at my application uh, once I passed the bar. So I graduate law school. I take the bar that summer. I pass. Then it's then it's like, all right, this is this is is good as you're going to get as far as, you know, putting everything together timing wise, because the process still takes a while. So my application luckily was well received and I went towards the top of the pile and I was able to get into a class within, you know, a few years, which is quick. I was, you know, I was going to say, you
0: you actually were doing defense work as an attorney for for a couple of years. It was like three or four years, I think. Right? Yeah,
2: I was at my law firm. I started working at my law firm in 99 Mm -hmm. uh, because it was right down the street from my law school. I went to Hostra and so it was right down the street and so, yeah, I was there for like five years. I think I practiced for, officially practiced for two. I got a phenomenal experience during law school because they they really, I mean, they were bringing me into so many different things that, so early on That's that um, by the time I graduated, it, there was not really a stress or a fear because I'd been doing it, you know, unofficially for, for how many years working with the attorneys and stuff. But yeah, I was doing mostly civil, civil defense work. So a lot of insurance defense litigation. We did medical malpractice defense and things like that. I did very minor criminal defense stuff. I, my heart was always kind of on the prosecutor side of things. My yeah. wife was a prosecutor, you know, at the time and, you know, <laughs> up until recently. So I never really felt like I would wanted to go to do the criminal defense work. I think I would just be really picky about the the matters I took. I yeah. have to actually believe in the case. To, yeah, to it,
0: it, it's tough, man. I made the decision when I started my business, like, yeah, I'm probably about a year in. I'm like, I just defense is not for me. You know, yeah. I had I, I worked for a plaintiff firm in-house and I had a, a similar situation. I didn't actually go to law school, but they were prepping me mm-hmm. like I was going to law school. So they were teaching yeah. me how to do all this stuff. And they literally told me, like, go to law school. We're going to pay you like you're an employee working for us. Wow. And then when you come out, you just come work for us. So I was like, that is oh. a sweetheart deal. And I really, really considered it until... I was sitting in in Bronx uh, Supreme Court one day and I had this freak out moment. Like I see all these attorneys behind me. I'm like, there are too many attorneys here in New York. Like I'm (laughs) never gonna stand out. I'm just gonna be another schlub and and I wanna do that. The other thing that you said I thought was really interesting, you're talking about your experience, excuse me, in defense. And that really laid the groundwork, I in my opinion, for what you're doing today in your experience of dealing with Insurance carriers and knowing how they think yep. and knowing budget wise and and panels and all this. And we're going to get into yeah. all that later. Uh, yep. But but I think that that laid the groundwork uh, for your experience. And you didn't you, you had such a a, a sidetrack to take to do the right. FBI stuff, but not even realizing the experiences that you had working for that law firm were going to benefit you later on when you got back into the private sector.
2: And, and that's happened to me with like four different things that I'm still shocked about. It goes to my, my continuing developing theory about all of this being a simulation, right? Like how, you know, the, the odds of Where's those Neo? things coming back into play, right? right? It's like, you know, all of that coming in, the, the cyber part of it, how it right. lent itself to the latter part of my FBI career. No way. And people were like, man, you really planned that out. I was like, I didn't plan it out. I just was doing things I loved. And then looking for ways to bridge the gap between the two separate things, but certainly didn't think that that would happen to to the extent that it has been happening. Right. Right.
0: So did you take the blue pill or the red pill? (laughs) Yeah, I think I
2: went down the rabbit hole. I think I took the red pill. I I just, I just, you know what it is? I don't, I don't, as I, I, you know, you spin your wheels on you thinking about these things. Yeah. And you say, well, I don't want to think about him too much because then I might actually inadvertently <laughs> sabotage.
0: Hey, Mr. Anderson's things. is going to come get you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like uh, what was that movie? Uh, Vanilla Sky. Right. You oh, know, when, when Tom Cruise becomes too aware right. that, that he's living in this kind of dream or whatever, yeah. um, then all of a sudden it becomes it becomes a nightmare. And I, I, I kind of believe that, like, you know, and I don't think that's for everybody. When you experience success, there's always a, a certain amount of almost like self-doubt or sure. you, know, you kind of question, right? Just yeah. like when bad things happen, you question, why me? When good sure. things happen, sometimes you question, why me? How is it that this is happening, sure. you know? But there's, I think there's a lot of things you can do along the way to increase your odds to make those things, those quote-unquote lucky things happen, right? And I think the the thing that's missing now in this world for a lot of people is people have this desire for success. And because of social media and things like that, everyone seems like an overnight success. Yeah, But they're not, right? But but especially what's portrayed on social media for a lot of people is the idea that people are overnight successes. And there's not enough people talking about the road uh, and how long the road was, and not enough people talking about how many people did things very similarly and ended up not coming out. on top. So it's that, it's that, I think it's Jefferson, that quote, right, is, is, you know, luck is the intersection of preparation and hard work, right? Yeah, that's when people say you're lucky. Yes, I think anyone who has any success is lucky, because there are people who did things very similarly that didn't have that outcome. Mm -hmm. But if you weren't prepared for those opportunities, when they come along, right, you weren't preparing for that, and you're not interested in hard work, then those opportunities will just be another part of a long list of failures on your part to say, oh, something came along, but I didn't take it because I wasn't ready, or I took it and I screwed it up royally. Well, that was the five years before that you should have been preparing for that moment. Right, right. So that when it came along, you could actually succeed.
0: You know, it, it's interesting that you're, you're talking about all this stuff. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to go down a different road in a minute <laughs> as we segue into uh, into what we're, we're talking about here after the break. We get this a lot. Folks that work for the federal government that then transition and go into private practice. So there, there, there are things you can do while you're working for the government that can set the groundwork for your post-government a career, right? So things along the way, it's not just the, you know, the skills that you gain in whatever specialty you have. There's, there's a lot more nuance to it and, and really understanding how to run a business also is something that, you know, you know, now you're responsible for everything. We're going to step out real quick and take a break, but when we come back, we'll touch on that a little bit. And then we'll, I really want to go down the the road (laughs) and talk about the the Silk Road uh, investigation. We'll touch on that a little bit and we'll talk about uh, basically what you're doing these days too. So everybody sit tight and we will be right back. Are you overwhelmed
1: with your current case log? Could you use some help with your skip trace assignments? With Merlin Locate Services, rather than adding staff, you can add an entire skip trace department of licensed private investigators who specialize in skip tracing. Check out merlinlocate.com today. When you work with Merlin Locate Services, you bring on a valuable experience and trusted extension to your team. Want full data access without a site inspection? IRB Search gives you full Social Security numbers, dates of birth, up-to-date contact info, and so much more, without the inconvenience or cost of an inspection. As an added bonus, you can access IRB data on any device in any location. You'll always have the best data, anytime, anywhere. Visit irbsearch.com and use exclusive promo code PIPOD2021 for a free trial and 100 credits. Offer available for new and returning customers. Check out the PI Institute of Education at PIinstitute.com. Since 1989, Kelly Riddle has been teaching on subjects such as surveillance, nursing home investigations, insurance fraud, domestic investigations, hidden assets, and accident scene investigations. The PI Institute of Education is a featured learning partner in the Investigatorstoolbox.com. So check out the free content on the site, then visit the Institute for more great savings on additional classes. Gappy will conduct a three-day training seminar offering 16 hours of continuing education credit on April 21st to the 23rd. This virtual conference will feature some great speakers including Eddie Ajabe, Jim Nanos, Kelly Riddle, Jim Baker, Mike Rundles, and our very own Matt Spare. You can register online at gappy.org or see the show notes. Congrats to show guest Chris Salgado, Chris Don's latest cover, PI Magazine and
0: highlight Cyberpol. The issues available today. And welcome back to PI Perspectives. This is Matt Sperry, your host. Uh, Today I'm honored to have uh, Vincent D'Agostino. You work with Blue Voyant, that's your business these days. But prior to that, you uh, were working for the FBI and you got involved in a very, very major investigation back in 2011, I believe, right? Uh, Yeah. So, Vinny, welcome back to the program. And, uh, Let's dive right in, man. So, Silk Road. For those that aren't familiar with that investigation, can you briefly just give me an overview of what was going on there, and what was your involvement in in, uh, in that investigation?
2: Sure. Yeah. Around 2011, somebody opened up a what's called a Tor hidden service, which is just a website on the dark web. The so onion router. Just, yeah, it was yes. exactly it exists within the onion router. And the website, which was called Silk Road, was brokering in narcotics at the time. It was weapons as well. No Mm -hmm. child porn or anything like that. But um, the site was growing very, very, very quickly because of where it was being hosted within Tor. Um, It's not like a traditional website, which is very easy to identify who owns the site or who's accessing the site. There's no... A legal process that can be served for someone operating a website on yeah. the course. So, um, <laughs> where, where are they located, right? Who's got yeah. jurisdiction. I mean, exactly. So. so that, that was, that was the background to the beginning of the investigation was actually started before I even landed on cyber. I was still over at uh, organized crime at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the investigation started probably around 2011. And I think I went over to the cyber squad in 2012 when the case was really kind of like getting full swing at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and very interesting. I I, I got to tell you I take offense though to the whole uh Princess Bride thing and and the uh, Dread iron Roberts like I love that movie. And <laughs> it, it, it was intentional. They yeah. there's conversations yeah. between
2: uh, the name was picked intentionally to create the confusion around who's actually running it. Yeah. That was deliberate. That wasn't, that wasn't just, you know, happenstance. Of
0: course, nobody knew who the dread pirate was. I mean, it could be 10 people you don't know. And and the, the whole concept of the the real dread pirate retiring, you know, three years earlier and then yep. handing it off to another guy and then off to another guy. It's kind of genius actually. If it you is. Think about yeah. It.
2: It's, the problem is, is that all these conversations about that conspiracy were recovered from the laptop. So, right. you know, it's great if you can, if you can play that angle uh, but when you have the conversation that precedes it that says hey you know if you ever get in trouble you could always be like hey it wasn't me it was someone else and and that's kind of then blows up your your alibi
0: okay so you you get involved in this I mean it's in full swing right Uh, yeah how soon was it before you guys kind of pulled the plug on the thing and just went uh, you know all in to to take this thing down
2: Yeah, the the arrest happened in 2013. So every agency, there were multiple agencies that had an investigation on local police departments, of course, every federal agency, DEA, Secret Service, Mm -hmm. um, you know, everyone was looking to figure out how to solve this. And the problem was, is that using traditional investigative techniques don't work if you, you can sign up to the site and buy drugs, but when you get it in the mail, fingerprinting the p- envelopes doesn't do anything sure um, you know the guy doesn't have uh, even if you track it back through the mail of where it was sent from it's not like it's gonna be sent from someone's house it's gonna be sent for some random mailbox in some town so now what right um, and then even so how do you let's say you track it back to someone who sent it so you go talk to that person that person agrees to cooperate what do they really know yeah they don't know who DPR is. They don't know who who any of the people are in real life. They can give you screen names and conversations, sure. yeah. but if the people are not saying who they are, then that's useless.
0: Yeah, I'm. I mean, there were a lot of different federal agencies that were involved in this too, right? I mean, definitely oh, yeah. not just the FBI. I think that it started with the DA, if I remember correctly. Right? Yeah, it's a
2: drug. It's a drug case, and the yeah. FBI actually had to fight. The cyber squads had to fight to even open up the case because yeah. it's a drug case. But this goes to show you, right? And this is why I made the switch from organized crime over to cyber. At that point, was because everything was going to have a cyber nexus. Mm-hmm. I could see it a mile away. Like sure. even even the wise guys we were arresting, we were seizing laptops, we were seizing phones. We we were they were they were running gambling operations using uh, online services, mm-hmm. uh, websites. So if wise guys were getting into that area, then then I knew that it was very likely that every criminal violation the fbi worked was going to have a cyber nexus white collar drugs they were all going to have that component to it and this was no different but the fbi back then was saying this is a drug case why would cyber open up a drug case
0: yeah it's so funny like if you look at the like the mcmillions too it's the same thing like they didn't want the case to start off with like (laughs) like, i don't even want to see this thing oh okay i guess i'll start doing it next thing you know it's like boom (laughs) this huge mega case yeah Uh, it's so funny man i i actually recall um Fear City, uh, the, the great documentary on, on Netflix, uh, talking about technology and, and kind of the uh, technology they were using at the mm-hmm. time uh, to to get information on the mob. Super fascinating, right? Turning, oh, yeah. turning CNN off, so the guy calls the cable company and says, uh, hey, my TV's not working. Gives them yeah. a, a chance to get somebody in there to play. the locks. A, a cable. Yeah, the surreptitious yeah. entry team. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's so funny because I, I just recently, I, I, I just recently started watching The Sopranos straight through yeah. and- I've, I've seen episodes here and there through the years and I know how it ends. So don't worry. No yeah. Spoiler. No risk of spoiler. <laughs> something about journey. Lot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but I never really watch it. it. Of course came up a ton during our investigations from the, our sources and stuff would constantly reference it. We'd be on wires and they're like, Hey, did you see last night? And sometimes there were issues where I'm like, I don't know what is mirroring. What are the yeah. wise guys mirroring the show? Is the show mirroring the wise guys?
0: Good point. Yeah. But,
2: um, but yeah, the, the technology At one point, you know, when Sal Bumpincero, Big Pussy, is wiring up, I was laughing because he's got this, like, Walkman-sized recorder, (laughs) and I said, you know, I was talking to someone, I said, you know, when I got there, luckily, we had some bulky recorders, not nearly that size, but we had some bulky ones, but we quickly started, as the technology evolved, especially regarding Bluetooth and things like that, um, and just, you know, uh, uh, the recorders generally, I didn't have to slap on these giant size recorders on our sources. It was a much easier sell than saying, here's some brick that put, you know, put it in your, put it in your pocket. So the technology changed a lot yeah, yeah. and a lot, a lot of recordings to exist that never would have before.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I was in the uh, mid nineties um, or early nineties, actually uh, I worked for a department of investigation at my internship through college and I was in the investigative squad uh, and it was in charge of doing like setting up wiretap equipment and, and video equipment oh, nice. and it was, it was bulky. It was definitely yeah. bulky, but it was cool. Like, I remember the first day the guy got in there and he turned on the TV and we could see us, you know, on the TV. And he goes, yeah. go find the camera. It's somewhere in this room. Yeah, somewhere in this room, yeah. right? And, you know, yeah,
2: it, it's just, it's funny because it's so, it's so, uh now everything, it, everything, we're, we're walking around with virtual networks, you know, between our watches and our phones and yeah. headphones, your cars, right? We've wired yeah. up Sources' cars. Yeah. Back in the day, if there was anything transmitting from your car, that, yeah. that doesn't make sense. Now, every car transmits yep. 50 different things happening even when a car's off so it became a lot easier it gave the sources i think a lot more plausible deniability sure. if something were to come up to be like i don't know it's a bmw you know yeah. it's like a, you know <laughs> does any of us here understand how a bmw works you know that that scene in um donnie brasco where he's checking his car rips the stereo yeah. out. It's like, yeah. do that on a on a, on a late model you know, German car now. You'd be yeah. there for two years pulling the guts out of that dashboard. Oh, absolutely. What,
0: when half yeah. of it was. Yeah, it's all the internet of things, right? That's yes. uh, the convenience of, of what we uh, we all want now with technology. And you know, you bring up a good point. All that stuff is all discoverable now. We're yeah. figuring out a way um, on, on the legal side to tie all that data because there is so much yeah. data out there Um, and how can I get that data and, and how, how is it useful to whatever problem I'm trying to solve here? Um, I, am seeing it left and right here with, with the wearables, uh, being discoverable now on personal injury cases. You know, we want to see what your heart rate is like, you know, because we want, we want to see if you're going to the gym and you say, you know, you're disabled, you can't work out, but then you've got this, you know, (laughs) these, these, uh, two hour blocks five times a week, you know, where, where your heart rate is elevated. You know, like you're stuff doing like that. Yeah. Exactly, right? <laughs> Sean T's yelling at somebody, right? It's it's terrible, um, but you yeah. know, it, it, it's it's amazing how technology has really advanced. And, and good for you having the foresight of seeing where all that was going, and that really laid the groundwork, uh, I think, for what you're doing now. So, tell me uh, a little bit about your company now, what you do, uh, and right. what your specialty is.
2: Yeah. So I left the FBI in 2015, and I left with three other FBI agents from cyber because we were working um, different aspects of cyber breach case, cases. And it became really obvious to us that we would go into these boardrooms to advise these companies that call the FBI. There was a massive breach. And it became obvious to us that a lot of the companies that they were bringing in on the private sector side, maybe were very technically capable. But beyond that, weren't able to provide much guidance at all as to like what what it means, right? right. So they're saying, we can show you this came in this date and that came over here and this data moved over here and it left on this date. And then like, so, okay, so what should we say to our board? What should we say to our regulators? What should we say to our customers? What's our next step? And they would really tap out a lot of them at that point or they would honestly be faking it. There's a lot of things that we saw that were people just giving horrible advice. Now at the FBI, yeah. we couldn't contradict that. That's not our yeah. role. Right. So we would get those phone calls. Hey, I really wasn't comfortable with what so-and-so was saying. Do you agree? And we'd say, uh, you're putting me in a bad spot, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> you know, Because I don't want what I'm telling you, you to do it and then it doesn't go right. And you blame the FBI and say, hey, the FBI told me to. Right. So it started to become obvious to me. And the other is that, there's a huge void here in private sector. So if we left to provide cyber defense service, cyber investigation related services, proactive services with the FBI background we have, I mean, who would better, who would, who would be better positioned to do that than people who were doing it for the FBI? And I was going with people that help create the cyber program. I mean, I came in late into the cyber program at the FBI. I was leaving with people, the ASAC of cyber and uh, an agent from cyber that were there from the, from the beginning when they were doing bootleg DVD cases. So they were there for the entire evolution of cyber. (laughs) So, so when we left, we went over to a company called K2 intelligence, which is a, you know, big investigations. K2 K2 integrity, Uh, Jules Kroll and Jeremy Kroll. Awesome Mm -hmm. people. We met with them. They were looking to expand their services that they could provide because they were seeing the same thing, which is every single business intelligence investigation we're doing has a cyber nexus. Sure. Right. It was all coming together. Everyone's realizing like, you know, we're doing these great investigations. But if someone says, this might have happened on the laptop, you need people there that know how to do real forensics on a laptop. Sure. So we left, we started doing that there, we set up, uh, we were doing incident response, and we were doing proactive services. And then it started to grow very, very quickly. And then we started to get into areas like managed security services, that really opened up everyone's eyes to say, well, we can't really continue to grow this within a consulting firm within the consulting firm model, right? If we're providing like, true technology services, managed services, threat intelligence. So what if we spun off and started a new company? So um, uh, Jules and Jeremy were all for it and said, all right, well, let's see what the interest is. And so we ended up um, coming across our CEO, uh, Jim Rosenthal, who was over at Morgan Stanley for many years as the CLO. And he was looking to do what his dream was. And his dream was to become part of a startup for um, cyber defense because he was seeing all the problems that Morgan Stanley was dealing with day-to-day. And they have unlimited budget.
0: Yeah, of course. So he's sitting
2: there going, if we're struggling with this and it's a daily fight, how does like a small to medium-sized business deal with this constant onslaught? So we met him, Um, he was uh, super interested in doing it, loved what we already had going. So we broke off very quickly within six months. He raised a ton of money dumped it into BlueVoyant. And so now we have three service uh, business lines. We have our professional services, which is what my team falls under the team I run. I'm head of cyber forensics incident response. So my whole team does nothing but breach response investigations. Okay. On the other side of professional services, we have proactive services, which are like the pen testing, yep. gap assessments, architectural reviews, really all the things that we urge customers and clients to do. Uh, so nobody you never does. have to meet me. <laughs> yeah. You never <laughs> want to meet me. You uh, never does. want to see my bald head on the other side <laughs> of a conference call. So do all uh, those proactive things yeah. so that any breaches you might have are minimal. They're contained. They're tiny. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so then we have managed uh, services, which is um, endpoint managed detection and response where we actually push out sensors on your network. We have a SOC in Maryland that monitors 24 seven. And that's mm-hmm. probably the number one biggest thing you could do to prevent a breach. Yeah. It's basically endpoint, um, putting something on every endpoint in your organization so that if someone opens up the email with the ransomware, it may detonate on that machine, but it's gonna stop there. We're gonna see it immediately. Mm-hmm. We're gonna quarantine that device. We're gonna alert you. And then we're gonna say, okay, this is what, this is what happened. It's contained at this point. Um, and so go on your way, rebuild the machine and go on your way as opposed to it yeah. full-fledged uh, compromising your network. Yep. Yeah. And I then we have, have threat intelligence uh, as well. So we, we, we bought um, some phenomenal data years ago while we we're at K2 that uh, some very, very high level DNS data that we can see essentially from the outside in that um, when attacks are happening and when things are evolving on the internet, we can actually see that before it even hits specific companies. So so the companies can actually use that data to see if they're being targeted uh, before a breach even happens. So yeah. it was a dream. It was a dream for me. I always wanted to be a part of a startup as well. Right. I was thinking, yeah, you know, 10 years down the road, this opportunity might present itself going back to our earlier discussion about how things evolve. Suddenly this startup thing comes almost out of nowhere and we're thrust into the middle of it in 2017. And we started, we started blue void. So yeah. it's been incredible. What a blessing.
0: So, um, we were talking earlier, um, even before we started uh, recording about the challenges of, of leaving a government position and uh, now coming in and uh, in the private sector, having to deal with insurance companies and being on panels and even you getting solicited to do work. One of the, your first questions is, you know, who's your carrier, making yeah. sure that, that you're going to get paid on this. So let's let's talk yeah. about that a little bit um, it, with your experience in dealing with that.
2: Yeah, and, and it, you brought this up earlier and it's a great, I think it's a great topic because I get at least five or 10 phone calls a year from uh, former colleagues, uh, friends of former colleagues that are thinking about making that transition from the government to the private sector. And um, there are a lot of misconceptions. I think there are a lot of things that people rightfully so are nervous about. And the transition isn't always smooth, taking those skills you have from the government side, going to the private sector. I mean, I remember, you know, when you're at the FBI, if we're dealing with a company that's in the midst of a breach, we're going to work at our pace. And I don't owe them, owe them anything in that sense of like, if they're like, Hey, we need an update today. If we're not prepared to give an update, we can't, there might be reasons because we might be up, be ready to go do search warrants and I can't give you an update. That's going to ruin it. (laughs) I can't even tell you about that. (laughs)
0: Quick, everybody burn everything.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, and, and so, um, the biggest difference is that when you move from government to private sector is, You have to, there's a paradigm shift. There should be a paradigm shift in your mind that you have to be ultra responsive to the client and you don't have the whole, you know, Hey, uh, we're the FBI. We'll let you know when we let you know, kind of thing. Not that I did that a lot, but there was certainly that fallback. If I had somebody that was being really pushy and aggressive I could, I could, I could push back and say, "Hey, listen, there are a lot of other things happening." You know, I've told you everything I could tell you up to this point. Right. I'll talk to you next week. You know, mm-hmm. you can call me every day if you want. It's not going to matter. Private sector, totally different. You have to switch your mindset to that—that that you're serving, servicing the client in that way. Sure. Um, and and you're going to get a lot of those phone calls.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, that's what managed services is for. Let that team deal yeah. with it, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> that's the cool thing. Like, do breaches. I look yeah. at it and that's why the the team that I have is so phenomenal. Yeah. We love it because we we get inserted into these um to these crisis management scenarios, but it, it's only gonna last for a month or two or three. So mm. if we don't if the client is really difficult to deal with, it's only you know, hey, get through it. It's we're not married to them. And that's sure. kind of nice as we get to we get to do, you know, we might have 20 active cases at any given moment, but even the bad ones that are tough clients, we know will be over soon. I love that yeah. part of it.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's a whole new Animal. I mean, it, it's it's very interesting to see the the, the transition and, and the folks that really are are thinking about doing it and really are unsure. Um, what would you say would be uh, a mistake that that uh, folks that are leaving government uh, make to to get into the private sector? What would you say would be like the number one mistake they make?
2: The number one mistake or the number one kind of pet peeve that I have is people who overly rely on their experiences at the at the government level and ex- seem to expect to carry it through through the private sector and yeah. the private sector is obviously much more cutthroat yeah. right and so there is nothing wrong with of course using your experience at the government i always looked at it two ways right there's a lot of back and forth when you take a government job you're you're not getting a tremendous amount in salary but i'm also being paid in experience that you can't get any place else and right. to me that's an investment in your future so I always understood that. I never thought I'd leave the bureau before 20, 25 years, but but I understood that even if I did, I was getting something back beyond beyond payment. But once I left, of course, you're going to ride those credentials into your new gig and right. you're going to be this former this and your former that and you did this case. And right. did There's that prestige
0: case. to that, definitely. Yep. Yeah,
2: but I gave myself six months of time to float on that, knowing that I had to create new experiences in the private sector that were more directly relatable to what my clients needed. Right. And so I didn't want to mention the FBI thing beyond just a part of a general introduction of my background. Right. You know, you talk about Silk Road and things like that, great cases and all that, but no one's calling us because they're looking to take down a dark web market selling drugs. That's, right. that's not the kind of work <laughs> I did. So I think I cringe a little bit and yeah. I think I, I I tell people that I'm close with when they're looking at is, is that if you're talking about that too much beyond six months you're setting you're setting yourself up for a disaster down the road where someone might realize that you haven't made that conversion. You haven't yep. moved from the mindset of the government side to the private sector side. So my best cases now um, are the cases that we've done in the private sector right. for private sector clients. So if someone yeah. says to me, we have an IR matter, tell us about the work you do. I spend one minute on my FBI background and I spend 10 minutes on the cases that I've done that are relative to what they're asking me to do. So if Makes it's a sense. ransomware investigation, yeah. I'll say it. we've done a ransomware investigation, um, uh, a breach investigation for a Bitcoin exchange, just like you. And this is what happened. This is how we dealt with the hot wallet services. And this is how we dealt with this. That to me, if I were on there and is more persuasive than saying, I jumped out of a helicopter once and I, uh, <laughs> you know, shot, shot a machine gun. Like yeah. it's cool. Those are yeah. cool bar stories, but yeah. that's not going to, you're going to find yourself, looking for new jobs every two years, if that's all you have.
0: Oh, that's, that's a great point, man. Um, so what would you say? Like, let's say you're, you're an investigator, right? You're a private investigator, you're running your own business and you get a phone call from somebody that has, uh, has had a, a cyber attack and it's mm-hmm. kind of not your specialty you know, normally folks may turn that work away. It's one of the reasons that we do this show here is because we want to introduce people to folks like you. Um, so that, so when they get that phone call, they say, I, I got a guy, I know somebody, yeah. let me connect the dots here. So what would you say would be the threshold for an investigator? If you get that kind of call in where you're like, well, this is way above my pay grade. Um, now it's time to call Vinny. Like, yeah. How how would you walk somebody down that? What What does that look like?
2: Yeah, so most of my friends that do the PI work, the majority of the work that they're going to get that fall into the types of stuff that forensics firms would do would be classified usually as what I would consider private client services. So you're mm-hmm. going to have a client who is going through a divorce or going through some dispute and has a device that they want to pull and extract information from. Mm-hmm. That technically is forensics. There's forensic work to be done. Right. That's not what we really do at, at Blue Voyant, But there, there are companies that do that. Mm-hmm. For that. Great.
0: Yeah, Paraben Power, and, and, and Amber Schroeder, she's great at doing that stuff. Yep. Yeah,
2: and and it's totally fine. For me, the threshold is when my friends that do this work call me is first question is, you know, it, it typically should be related to a, a corporate breach or breach or a business breach. It's not personal. It's not someone right. looking at looking for to find out their husband is cheating on them right. or their husband's doing whatever. It's that there's been a breach at the company. And maybe, maybe it's something as simple as a business email compromise where there's like a wire transfer redirect, right? Those are right. super common, right? Yep. Company gets duped, they wire out a million dollars and they realize they wired it to the wrong company. And now mm. each party's pissed off because they're saying, hey, I already paid and they're saying we never got it. Right. So somebody's got to figure out what happened. Yeah. Um then those types of things would would rise to that level of course ransomware being the probably num- the number one thing we do now and that's an obvious one right hey our network was hit where all of our devices are encrypted right I think from the PI's perspective gathering some baseline information before you make the phone call is really helpful so some of that baseline information would be determining whether this is personal or corporate related determining the, g- the general gist of it you don't have to be super technology driven but if you know that It's a business email compromise. It's a ransomware case. It's an insider threat case. PIs get a ton of those. We have an employee that we think is stealing information from our company. Get the general gist of it before you reach out to someone like me so that – I can hopefully save us all time because if it's something that's not in our real house, I don't want to waste everyone's time and get on phone calls. Yep. So I could say, hey, I got. I can't do this. I'll give you the name of someone who does this kind of work. Or I could say, yes, let's set up a scoping call right away. We'll jump on a phone call. Yep. The insurance thing that you mentioned is really important. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to subject the person calling me to bottom line is ask if they have insurance. Yeah. You know, I I, I, I would paying? never want to torch. Yeah. To <laughs> That's say, the more
0: important question. Who's paying the bill?
2: <laughs> yeah. Do you have insurance? Who's your carrier? Right. Uh, and if they don't know, then then you've now given them good advice, which is you need to find out. You right. need to find out the insurance because you need to call them first and let them know. And then you could always mention a Blue voyant and say, hey, we spoke to Blue Voyant briefly. They advise us to call you. We'd like to work with them. Yeah. And if we're on their panel and everything, then, then that'll happen. Right. But I, these things are, these things are crisis scenarios and I don't like wasting, I don't want to waste their time and take them down a road of doing something. And then they go, we can't use you anyway, I'd rather than sure. get to the right person faster.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, so we're, we're going to um, segue just a little bit too, because I want to go back to, um, before we wrap up, up here, I want to go back to, to the person that's just starting their own business and, you know, leaving the federal government and, and doing their own thing here. I think something that, that may get overlooked is continuing education. I think folks that really succeed in doing this kind of stuff don't just rely on their past exactly. experience. They're hungry to you know, continue that knowledge, right? They're going to the osmosises. They're going to yep. the, the different uh, programs that are out there. And during COVID, forget about it. It's like everywhere. There's so many virtual learning opportunities for people. Some, are, Most are actually even free. I think the folks that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to take take it to that extra step, right? To have the foresight to say, okay, I need to learn, what are the trends and topics today? What are, what are everybody talking about? Uh, and how can I get a piece of that, right? How can I get into that? So yeah, I think it's really, really important to to stay on top of that stuff. Whatever it is you decide to do coming out of the government, continuing education, even if it's not required in your state, because like New York, it's not for our yep. PI licenses, do it anyways, because it'll make you more marketable, right?
2: Yeah, and it's part of what we were talking about before, before this, you know, the networking is a big part of it. Identifying people within the industry that you respect, that that are good sources for information, that they can look at you in the same way. Right. You know, um, you, you're talking about Kenny, right? Yeah. You know, Kenny is always hungry to discovering new ways to do things, right? I, love how that would guy. I, I had this? <laughs> how would I get to that? If you're not, if you're not doing that, things are evolving so quickly yeah. that you know it. If you talk to somebody who tapped out on learning new techniques new methodologies 10 years ago, within two minutes, you know, uh, this guy, you know, he doesn't even know what's possible anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I, so you you have to be thinking about that anything you you do regarding investigations, whether you're at the federal government, or even more so in the private sector is evolving so quickly that it's part of your self preservation, like you said, even if it's not required, it right. should be part of your self preservation to to be useful to have a job to continue to go out there and um, discover new things, right. so that when it comes across in a new case, you don't miss an opportunity to knock something out of the park because you're completely unaware of a technology that may e- exist, a database right. that may exist, a right. technique that may exist because you decided you just didn't care enough to 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 learn about
0: it. Right, and then all of a sudden, you actually become an expert in that as well, right? And then there's yep. you're speaking about it, you're teaching about it, exactly, and, and you you could see your business you know, really really take off with that. So. Yeah, man, these are all really good points. Uh, you know, the thing I love about Ken is I'll get texts from him at like late 12, 1230. hey, I just uh I just did this training, I just got this certificate, yeah. you know. Yep. I'm, I'm like, all right, man, let's talk about it tomorrow. It's yeah. late. <laughs> but, yeah, same. Same thing. And but you yeah, know, he's and, a good and, and, yeah. and for you younger people,
2: you have no excuse, right? Yeah. Because you're talking about Kenny. Kenny grew up long before the internet, yeah. right? You know, for people that are getting into this business that grew up with the internet, you know, with cell phones, you have zero excuse, especially from a technology perspective, to not be on the ball with yeah. what's available to yeah. you. It's harder for people that are older, of course, because it's it's so different than the first half of their life. Sure, you know all of this stuff. So uh, you have less of an excuse, I think, the younger you are, to really go out there and be aggressive with this. And for the older Guys that are doing this, they bring that experience to the table, which is invaluable. You can't substitute that. Sure. But they're going to have to work harder at understanding the technology as it evolves.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, your past experience will only get you so far, right? It, yep. There comes a point where you actually have to, you know, do do your craft, right? Yep. If you you know, if you want to be in in the private industry, you got to actually do your craft. Um, So, all right, we're going to wind down here, man. Vinny, thank you so much for this. This was really, really great. Um, Just fascinating to to meet you and understand where you're from and what you do. How do folks get a hold of you if they had any further questions?
2: Bluevoid.com. You could you can reach me through the website if you have a, a breach or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You can go on my Twitter. It's at proofofwork1. I do post all sorts of things on there related to all the different things I'm interested in from cyber to organized crime to uh, Bitcoin to whatever whatever mm-hmm. ha- would what have you. Yeah. But yeah, it's probably the best way.
0: Yeah, we'll have to have you back on at some point to talk about yeah. Bitcoin too. That's that's always a, a it's show worthy. Yeah. It's, it's good stuff. So, all right, man. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we will catch everybody on the next show. So that
1: was a great show. Thank you, Vinny, for coming on and talking about your experiences. We look forward to having him back on to talk about Bitcoin and that side of the business. We'd also like to thank Crosstrax Merlin Locate, IRB, and the PI Institute for Education for sponsoring our show. Have you checked out investigatorstoolbox.com yet? Remember, it only takes 49 cents a day to unlock the future of investigations. So make an investment in your business and yourself today. You can save some money by using code PIP201836 to save an extra $20. And if you have a question or a comment about the show, email Matt at matthews at satellitepi.com. You can also find them on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. We want your feedback to bring you the best shows possible. And we'll be back on Monday with a new show. So make sure you tune in. Stay safe out there.